Talk, the Arkansas Arts and Entertainment Podcast, where we talk about things and events that are happening around Little Rock. I'm Amaya Jones, and I'm here with Stephanie Smittle. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking with Carl Anthony, longtime uh, principal keyboardist at the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra, Maestro Philip Mann, the conductor, and also Stephen Wurgis, who is uh, opening a new Steinway Gallery here in Arkansas in Mayflower. We'll talk about the new instrument that the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra has acquired and which will uh, go up on stage this weekend at the Robinson Center Performance Hall and uh, in a program called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. So we'll be back to talk with them shortly. But first, we just want to fill you in on a couple of little bits of arts and entertainment news. First up, the MacArthur Museum of Military History was closed. If you didn't know that, it was closed (laughs) all summer long. And so after a six-month hiatus, they're celebrating uh, their reopening with a big bash this Saturday. So if you are into military history, check that out. It's, uh, It's free. They're starting with a vintage military vehicle show at 9 a.m., music from the 106th Brass Quintet, and they'll cut the ribbons on the new museum. Uh, So celebration goes all day long, but at 4 p.m., it turns into a German beer garden. So there will be beers from local breweries, bratwurst plates from First Lutheran. So, yeah, go check out MacArthur Park if you have not been there in a while. And we also want to call your attention to, I don't know, have you heard about this underwater concert? What now? There's an underwater concert happening at the Hyper Center at the University of Central Arkansas. This is so cool. So every year they do this thing called Conway Eco Plus Arts Fest. And this year, the College of Fine Arts and Communication has uh, invented this project called The Water About Us. It's all about water. It goes through October 6th and it uses the arts to highlight our relationship to water, its influence on our everyday lives, how our common reliance on it binds us together, and that our relationship to water is the source for stories about how we exist. So here's how that happens, right? This collective, a core dance, her ding cats, that's H-E-A-R, ding cats collective, and Chauncey Williams, are collaborating for something, uh, uh, it's, it's an underwater music, dance, video, and poetry event. So what will happen is the swimming pool at the University of Central Arkansas's Hypercenter will become the site for the performance. And there are six performances uh, at October 4th and 6th. And on both days, those performances are at 7 p.m., 7.45 p.m., and 8.30 p.m. And you can sign up to literally just stand in the water, in the swimming pool. You know, you got to go in your, uh, like in your bathing suit and wear the right kind of shoes and stuff. But you can be in the water with the performers as they do this. Um, the, the actual performance is called Aquarled Waves at the Water About Us. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but it's... It's uh, it's spelled A Q U R L D waves at the water about us, which is the name of the exhibit. Looks super cool. I'm looking at a picture of it. There are um, visual projections. There's dance. Uh, there will be music involved, and uh, they say audience members who can choose to sit poolside or float in the water along with the artists will experience a full sensory awareness of water, not only how it feels but how it sounds and affects our movements. I'm intrigued. Super cool, and it's free. So uh, check that out. It's it's gonna be, uh, if you go to, let's see, 
uh, tinyurl.com and search for The Water About Us. You should be able to, to find it there. You can also find more information about it at artsinconway.org, and we will uh, write about it in the uh, issue of the Arkansas Times that comes out next week. Super cool. I just, I, I can't. I can't even fathom what this will be, but the idea of yeah. an underwater concert, it's good kind of mayhem. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I'm intrigued and I'm sort of curious about the level of difficulty that's added by doing it in water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Underwater instruments? Yeah. How will this happen? Mm. Go, find <laughs> out. Uh, but meanwhile, we will be right back to talk about the new Steinway piano that's been acquired at the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra and the program on which they will play that piano this weekend. back to No Small Talk. I'm Stephanie Smittle, arts and entertainment editor for the Arkansas Times. I'm here as always with Omaya Jones. Hello. And we are here with Carl Anthony. Hello. Stephen Virgis. Hey. Virgis. Virgis. Okay. Virgis sounds pretty good. Though. Okay. Yeah, All right. Not like Wagner. <laughs> and Meister Philip Mann. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. We are all gathered here uh, today in, in the name of, of Steinway and uh, to talk about a very special instrument that has become a new acquisition for the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra. So first, I just want to ask you to explain to us in layman's terms what this instrument is and why we care about it. Well, I'll, maybe I'll take the lead on that. Sure. Um, we've had uh, an ongoing conversation for the entire time that I've been in Arkansas, so this is my ninth season, about one kind of conspicuous absence in central Arkansas, which is a really superlative, world-class concert piano that we were fortunate to be recruiting and, and, and attracting extraordinary talent from around the world to perform here, but we've never really had an instrument that was capable of fully translating their artistry to all of the welcoming ears of audience members. And so this has been a little bit of a labor of love for me uh, for many years to, to see this to fruition, to finally have a new instrument on our concert stage. But the, the short answer to this story, the most recent part, is simply that we have this wonderful, you know, Stephen, uh, we're, we're just here, uh, we'll, he'll tell you, I'm sure in a few minutes, we now have a Steinway dealership here in Little Rock. And he took the initiative in really reaching out to some people that were um, fond of the instruments, uh, wanted to support that type of uh, arts production, if the, for lack of a better word, in central Arkansas. And we had a lovely lunch at, at Cafe 42, and I laid out this project that I've been working on for a long time, and Stephen had done an extraordinary job of kind of preparing some welcoming ears. And we were fortunate to have two champions, two stellar supporters of the arts, um, Pat and Jim Wallace, that are just uh, 
the nicest people, new, new residents to Little Rock, uh, with some connections to Little Rock, but coming back, um, Pat being this vivacious media television personality, and they heard what we wanted, they heard what we needed, and they graciously put up the funds to make this happen. Uh, and then the next chapter in that story is Stephen uh, hosted us at Steinway in New York at the factory, and Tatiana Reitman Mann, my wife, brilliant concert pianist, uh, played lots and lots of pianos. And we, we picked one out and were absolutely thrilled with the choice. Uh, I could talk forever about this because you, I mean you can probably tell from the expression on my face this is this is a this is a happy day for me. This is to see a project uh, eight nine years in the making come to fruition, and we're going to hear that piano on the new Robinson stage for the first time this weekend. So Stephen, this afternoon you actually worked with this instrument, right? And yes. as I understand, voiced it for the hall. What is that? What is that? What does that mean? Well, voicing it for the hall actually is um, preparing how it projects in the hall. Preparing, uh, pre preparing how it projects in the hall. Like when the uh, when the concert artist is playing it, how he can when he plays the piano, he is voicing as he plays and how hard he plays the instrument. Mm -hmm. So it is my job to go over the instrument at um, at a very evenly playing it and seeing how how it sounds, how it sounds in the hall, if it needs to be more powerful, if it needs to uh, back away a little bit. So what I did was I actually did a little bit of regulation to the instrument to kind of uh, make it, uh, kind of seated it together and made it just really powerful and project really well in the hall this afternoon, along with tuning it. And that's what we'll hear uh, this weekend for the ASO's uh, season opening. Right? That's right. We have a, a concert artist, pianist, uh, soloist, David Fung, coming into town, who uh, I've been thrilled to introduce to our audience this year. He has a brilliant sensibility for Mozart, and it's a nice combination with his piano. But really, truly, we don't have just one soloist on the program this weekend. We have two soloists, because Carl Anthony, sitting across the table from me right now, is playing the piano part in Stravinsky's Petrushka, which is arguably the most important and well-known um, uh, piano solos of the entire orchestral repertoire. Uh, so it was actually a part of our thinking in getting this piano that I wanted to make sure the piano was on the stage before our season opener so Carl would have what we've started to call kind of the black stallion or the black beauty, this amazing right. instrument <laughs> underneath his fingers to play, you know, the somewhat daunting, but he's pulling it off with a plum and, and incredible artistry, that Petrushka, so. <laughs> Petrushka. Yeah, it is uh, probably the most challenging of the orchestral piano parts, and uh, I think this is the third time I've played it. I've played with the, the orchestra as the orchestral pianist for 40 years, and so it's very exciting to have this new instrument and get to play it, and um, we really haven't had a soloist play the old Steinway for quite a few years, have we? So we've had to what, rent, rent we've had pianos. To, we've had to rent pianos, yes. Yeah. Can so you talk a little bit about, because I, I think, you know, I'm not a pianist, and so I'm, I'm curious, what's the sensory difference when you play an instrument like this? Just, you know, as, as an instrumentalist, what, what about an instrument like this feels different than, like, you're upright in the, you know, corner at, at so-and-so's house? Well, first of all, when you have a, a nine-foot Steinway, you're going to have longer strings, so you're going to have much more sound, much more, um, everything is much better. Um, just the feel of the Steinway. I don't know what some other instrument. I'm not going to name other other brands of pianos, but sometimes it feels like you're playing on a, a, a tabletop. There's just no give, and, and a Steinway has that beautiful aftertouch. Yeah, I guess it just it. it just keeps giving. You know, the more you dig into the piano, the more it actually gives you back. I don't think that you could actually get everything out of a Steinway, really. I mean, I think I've heard some very powerful people play on 
a Steinway and they just get everything back that they put into it. So um, it makes it easier on the pianist to play a piano like that that has that kind of color, that kind of expression in it. And just the quality of, uh, of materials that goes into a Steinway and the workmanship and craftsmanship just makes it um, just a dream to work on. From a technician's point of view, um, I can actually um, get finished with it when I'm working on it. I'm actually like, I get done and I'm happy. I'm like, wow, I've actually, you know, got this piano sounding great and I love it how it sounds and uh, just because of how well put together it is. They're certainly not mass produced, right? What are they no, produce? About, about 1,200 a year? About 1,000 a year and each Steinway takes about a year to make. And then from a Damn. <laughs> That's yeah. a long time. If you go into actually when when we were at the Steinway uh, factory, it's like four hundred thousand square feet of factory that uh, and Steinway was founded one hundred sixty four years ago, and they they have mastered piano building. And if you actually go from the time that they get the lumber in and start curing it for the piano, there's literally years involved. And from the time drying the lumber all the way to the piano being done. But they actually start production on it, and then 365 days later, they finally have a piano. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because, you know, the process of Steinway's uh, production process, you know, it's well over 100 years old, 100, more than 150 164. years. 164. And so you'd think, well, it's an antiquated approach to making an instrument that essentially hasn't changed too dramatically in that amount mm -hmm. of time. But actually Steinway's always been a total leader in, in technology of mm -hmm. construction. And to behold their, their factory now, it's a technical marvel. Uh, but really, I mean, I, for me as a conductor, though, for my, I mean, that's my old engineer talking. I just love walking <laughs> through this factory, seeing all these, the largest CNC machines you could possibly imagine, but still the handcrafted stuff happening with, with all the millions of workers, it seemed like, but there were hundreds of, of workers all <laughs> around the factory. And But for me as a conductor, what I think about is, it's the Steinway sound has become so indelible to how we come to the instrument and how we come to repertoire, how composers have even envisaged the repertoire that they've written, that when we think of the perfect piano sound, that really just is the Steinway sound. Right. And the expectation from a conductor standpoint, when we have a world-class soloist come by, come through town, they just expect to have a great Steinway on stage. Now there are other there are other important piano makers, and you might have that as an alternate instrument. Or and in fact, Steinway, uh, Germany. There there there's the New York factory, and then there's the Hamburg factory. There might be a sense that you might have a, an, a German instrument as well. But really, if you have one instrument, no, there's no question that everyone expects in the U.S. and in most places in Europe even to have a New York Steinway as your main instrument. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. I was going to say to go off at that point. You know. Um, statistics from actually Steinway uh, is 98% of all concert halls across the world have Steinways in their concert halls and uh, How about CD recordings of piano music I bet 99.9% .9 are made yeah, on Steinways, on Steinways. Sure. and 99% uh, of artists prefer a Steinway and um, so you've got I think there's around 28 different manufacturers that, that make a nine-foot piano but uh, Steinway dominates it with 98% of concert halls. What's typical? Nine foot versus? A typical piano. Well, yeah, like it's... Well, like, it depends so it's, on the size of the room. I mean, a living room, uh -huh. you want a nine foot unless you have a... You want about a six foot, between five and six yeah. foot in a living okay. room. Clearly you haven't been in my apartment then. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a, a seven foot and a uh, five ten. <laughs> Um, I was going to ask you, you have a, you said you, uh, you, 
earlier when you were answering the question, you said that your inner engineer was coming out. Do you oh. have an engineering background? I used to say engineering physics. Okay. And uh, before my life as a musician, I was definitely, well, I don't know if you're, I'm not sure if being an engineer or a musician is more nerdy, but I went on some side of that nerd <laughs> spectrum back and forth. Yeah. Isn't so like what? Can, how do you make that transition? Or were you just you just always had the two interests, like the music and the the engineering? You know, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And frankly, I think if you want to find a room of the most extraordinary brain power, all you have to do is show up at an orchestra rehearsal. Um, if you look at the average SAT scores of an orchestra, like the Texas All-State Orchestra or something like that, it, it's 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 the highest you would ever find in any group of people. Uh, and in fact, there's all kinds of studies that show now that you know students that study a, an instrument like piano or violin before age seven, they have higher spatial reasoning skills, they have higher math computational abilities, they have uh, they score higher in standardized tests. I could I mean I could preach to the choir here all day long, but basically making a lot of the connections, especially left and right brain connections, music actually makes you a better mathematician. It makes you more receptive to doing really great scientific inquiry uh, because of your ability to uh, connect different parts of your brain together. And that, that just comes from, for instance, a pianist having its left and right hand doing different things at the same time. It, yeah. it, it prepares your brain for that kind of thing. Yeah, I know oftentimes on like Nova and stuff, they may have those specials where they mix, or they, they talk about music and its connection to mathematics oftentimes. Uh -huh. And so um, uh, I, I had another question, which was, I so going to the orchestra, I noticed there are a lot of times that there are things that seem um, sort of like just, I guess like they're just parts of, of it. Like you'll, you'll, you will come out and you'll uh, maybe bow and then you'll like, you'll go back into the wing and then you'll come back. And like, do you know, what is the history of, of that and all of like the, um, the Routine. All of that pageantry oh, and yeah, spectacle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it looks kind of like a sacred service yeah. where you're not, you know, and, and people, I mean, are understandably a little bit afraid sometimes to ask, like, why things are mm -hmm. happening. But one of the things I'm really proud about with what we've done with the Arkansas Symphony is we've really communicated very in a friendly way and in an open way with our audiences so um, I love that you're asking these questions because mm -hmm. these are the kinds of questions that we get at our at our, our concerts now yeah. pre-concert talks and mm -hmm. things and so everything really is happening for a specific reason it's mm -hmm. it's not that we really just love the pageantry so you know when our when the orchestra is out there on stage when you show up at a concert they're warming up I mean they're mm -hmm. just straight up getting their muscles ready to go they're like athletes preparing for, they're getting in the zone. I mean, they're getting in their focus. They're practicing the really tough stuff. Uh, and then at some point, we're just going to be quiet. And, and typically, that's just somebody on a light board that brings the light down. And then you've got the concert master, who's that first violinist. And he'll come out on stage, or she'll come out on stage, and and typically then acknowledge, be, acknowledge the audience who's mm -hmm. clapping. And in a, in a way, that person is simply acknowledging the thanks and appreciation of the audience on behalf of his or her colleagues on stage and then we'll tune and then when the orchestra when the conductor comes out the conductor often bows but the first thing they often do is shake the concertmaster's hand and so that's a bit of a pat that kind of spectacle but really what it is is to thank the orchestra for the privilege to work with them and then and then the conductor bows but it's not really the conductor bowing for him or herself it's to bow on behalf of the orchestra again. And then between movements and things like that, uh, we'd normally stay out on stage, but you're right. And sometimes the conductor goes off stage mm -hmm. between pieces. And part of that's so that musicians, you might not notice, are coming on and off stage at the same time. And just since they're not in the front of the stage, you might not notice that. Um, and, and then there are other things where we think about a concert as a whole unified thing. So in the middle of a symphony, we might not want people to clap sometimes because you, want, you don't want to break the silence in some ways is as important as the music, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, as a conductor, like I'm, I'm in the minority here, but uh, when people, you know, spontaneously erupt into applause at the end of a movement, 
that's just an honest yeah. expression of emotion. And I, I actually kind of like to hear that. Okay. You know you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. They were moved yeah. to do that. I thought you were going to ask something totally different, uh, asking about pieces of things. So I thought you were going to ask, like, why... Um, why do we hear excerpts from things? Why do we hear only the overture? Why do we hear uh, a particular movement and just like programming wise, um, how do you go about making sure that something like uh, Mozart and Kenji Bunch, what, how do you say this last name? Bunk? Kenji Bunch? Bunch? Yeah. Bunch? Oh, this is this is for uh, the River yeah. Rhapsodies. But so so in general, though, my question is, how do you go about programming things so that they're cohesive? And mm. then when do you make the decision not to perform a piece in its entirety? Well, we we typically at, at the Arkansas Symphony, and when I'm programming, we always really do the entire piece. I mean, there's some there are exceptions to that. I mean, but that's a rare exception. I would say programming it's it's an art form, and it's a little bit like I like I think about programming the way I like cooking. Like if you go to a, an amazing fusion restaurant that has maybe a French classical chef that's that's trained that way, but you know you could tell that when he or she was working in in Japan in their thirties, they absorbed all these other flavors and tastes, and then it, and then they've in, in, in put that into the the French uh, uh, milieu or whatever, and suddenly you've got this new thing. And I so I think about it in the sense that let's give our audiences something that they know they like that's maybe a little bit familiar, but let's find a way to present in a new way. So the old and familiar tastes fresh and, uh, and it has an immediacy and uh, um, as if it was maybe written yesterday. But at the same time, I also think that we are in a privileged position. I mean, anybody, we, we have over 300 years of extraordinary creations of mankind that we could present every week. And uh, it, the challenge is really just getting people in the hall because it sells itself. It's amazing. And I like as a programmer to think of the connections. This weekend, we're doing the Sorcerer's Apprentice on the first half and then the Mozart that we talked about and then Stravinsky Petrushka. And part of the connection is that all uh, well, the, the Duca and Stravinsky have incredible connections to Paris. French orchestration connects them, but also Petrushka and Duca have a story behind them. So there's this kind of narrative arc that fits to this program together, that this is program music. This is music that tells a story. Uh, and for me, I think any program, it probably has three or four different threads like that that ties it together. Uh, but just maybe one last thing I would mention is that some things just taste right together. I mean, Mozart and Ravel, or Mozart and Tchaikovsky, that always tastes great. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, why don't you do Brahms and Wagner together? It doesn't taste right. Plus, there's a historical reason for that, perhaps. But, yeah, there, there are things that we just, uh, they're great combinations that people that love music just intuitively pick up on. Can you, so Petrushka is a ballet, right? Mm -hmm. Is there, is it typically performed in this way, like in a concert form? Or is this a, sort of a different, something different? No, I, I you know more than me. I'm probably more so in, in the, Concert version, because uh, then it's more expensive. You have to get a ballet company. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It's not that the ballet is bad. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I mean, it's very practical too. I mean, it's terrifyingly difficult, and it's hard to choreograph and dance to. So uh, you hear it done more on the concert stage. Mm -hmm. uh, and and one thing I'd mention to your listeners really is that this is a very very rare opportunity to hear the original version of Petrushka this week. This is the 1911 version that is is I I've never actually even personally heard it live before. It's very rarely produced. Um, that he revised it in 1946. It was published in 1947. And that's the version that most people know. But we're doing the real deal original version that came out just a year after he wrote Firebird, which was uh, when he became a household name all across the world. And in my perspective, it's like, wow, you, you hear the Firebird in there in moments. There's this clarinet solo that it's it's straight out of the end of Firebird. So it, it's... Uh, 
I would I would say that it's it's more more frequently done on the concert stage, uh, partly just because it's also one of the great orchestral showpieces, and it's a challenge for us to sink our teeth into. Recently, New York Philharmonic did a performance of that, and the the um, players in the orchestra were dressed as clowns and puppets, and, and they were walking around and playing. And that piece is difficult to play if you have to actually Can you imagine, play a character. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was on Facebook, I remember watching what? it. It was really, it was really And there's cool. a new performance tradition of this piece that, I mean, it's actually about a magician, a charlatan, that has a puppet theater with three mm -hmm. puppets. Right. So there, there's now this tradition that you can do it with puppets. So people actually produce a, a, ba a puppet ballet that goes along with this piece that's done quite frequently. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like the most outrageous character music. I mean, it just leaps from the stage and it has the the, the depth and amount of humor in this piece is just astonishing. It's to me it's like this technicolor kaleidoscopic amazing array of just an extraordinary virtuosity of composition and orchestration. It's just this it's like a kaleidoscope. It's incredible. And yet still, some people will think it's strange music, but it's over 100 years old already. It's well over 100 years old, and, and yet if, it, still think it's if, I told, if I told our audience that it was a world premiere, they might believe it, because that, yeah. I mean, it sounds modern, but it also just has this intoxicating freshness to it. I mean, it just seems so real and, and new. At least that's what we hope it will be. I mean, like we, you know, we, we, like I said, it, it's a challenge for our musicians. But it's I, I have found that when we've opened seasons with things like the Rite of Spring or or Strauss, those can be some of our uh, our most electric and uh, captivating performances. They they often have a sense of spontaneity that uh, I, I really enjoy as a performer. Go ahead. Uh, oh, I was going to ask. Uh, do you, either of you have any other like background, like mathematics or anything that before you were? Or that took you to music, or I have an identical twin who was uh, an engineer. He was got civil engineering and went to Berkeley. And oh, okay. So we that, that's sort of, but he still plays piano too. But and it's interesting that, that oh, yeah, cool. the same DNA have <laughs> so they, they work well together, right? I used to I used to be the conductor of the Oxford University Orchestra, mm -hmm. and the joke in the orchestra was that the best musicians were none of them were music majors. It was all the maths people, all the physicists, all the cancer biologists, uh, all these people that are high achieving in, in, in math and sciences. So so often we find that they have a background in music now. And I I always when I'm you know when I'm doing my development work and raising money for the arts, uh, one of my favorite statistics is that medical schools now accept music majors at more than a two to one rate over every other major and that, that includes yeah. pre-med biology chemistry the whole thing law schools are coming around to that too now oh wow i have a high school student who great really fine piano she played uh, one of our shows with us a couple of years ago but she's at stanford now studying medical research oh so, I mean, my brother was you know was a trumpet player and now he's a brain surgeon you know and he he, he says that he was excelled in medical school because of his conservatory education mm. discipline yeah, I know. I'm regretting never uh, following through on my desire to learn an, an instrument at all. <laughs> uh, it takes parents, too, to, to push yeah. you and make sure you practice. And, parents uh, and earplugs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> earplugs. <laughs> so I want to ask about, you mentioned that the 1911 version of Petrushka is not performed very often. And is that, how is it different? Is the is the piano part different or is that the orchestration? I was looking or? at the 1947. I, it's been a long time since I played it, but it looks like there's a few. It's, it's more or heavily orchestrated the later one, or 
Less. More leanly, yeah, and the piano part's pretty similar yeah, in, in right. the two, but, but like there's some other things in there. It's yeah. it's surprisingly different. I mean, uh, I mean, there's a story behind him wanting to to revise it, and part of that was to keep it under copyright. It was a money decision, and he wanted to also change it to make it slightly smaller, a slightly smaller orchestra, which would mean that more orchestras would perform it because it was cheaper to perform. Uh, so there was kind of a financial imperative behind it, uh, but when you have the rare opportunity of a large orchestra to open the season. Uh, that we have because the Duca is also a very large and colorful orchestra that let's let's take this chance to do 1911 together now I would I would also say that what he it's not just the orchestration that changes he he later kind of having you know 30 more years of experience as a composer found out ways that were maybe a little bit easier for musicians to read the music mm. and he rebars it he scores it slightly differently so it, it just plays off the page a lot more easily. And so the 1911 is more of a mental challenge for people. Uh, you know, for if there are any musicians listening right now, instead of a 4-8 bar followed by a 2-8 bar, in 1947 he just uses a 3-4 bar, which is a lot easier. So another instead of thinking one and two and one and and going on, it's just one and two and three again. And that's just a lot easier to think about. Oh. So so you're so, but you're playing the more difficult version, 1911 version. Right. Um, and so is the, that the piano part is, is about is the that same? A, oh, it's yeah, yeah. Is that, well, is that yeah. appealing like the more difficult version? Well, I mean, we don't really think about it as more difficult. I mean, maybe okay. I'm overstating that. I think it's just more of a challenge, and it mm. also there are some things that are perhaps a little bit more elegantly and refined in a more refined sense presented in the, in the later version. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's more of like a, a architectural problem to to make it work from a score standpoint. But I find, you know, with a lot of composers who revise their works later, you it's, to me it sometimes loses the youthfulness and the newness of the original version. Mussorgsky would be a very good example of this. You know, when he later has things reorchestrated by other people. Uh, if you listen to the original Mussorgsky, and in this case the original Stravinsky, uh, I think you can hear the genesis, like the germs of the original ideas that, that were so new at the time. Uh, and I think it also sounds a little bit, you can you can try, trace the, the connection to Firebird for me a little bit better too in the way he writes some of the stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, it's interesting because I know like listening to Lin-Manuel Miranda talk about like writing Hamilton and like rhymes mm -hmm. and sort of like there, you have to be conscious of like how, how you can actually articulate the words in a rhyme. And so um, when you're talking about uh, rewriting so that, that um, the music comes off the page easier or that it, it's, it's, easier just for the musician to play it, you know, less thinking. Uh, it sort of resonates with me. It's like sort of the same thing. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's a, we have a practical business too. You know, mm -hmm. professional orchestras don't rehearse for months for a performance. Mm -hmm. we, we, we get together a few days before a performance. Uh, so, you know, the, it, making things easy to understand is something that especially young composers mm -hmm. benefit tremendously from. Yeah. I want to go back to the Steinway for a moment and ask <laughs> if there's... <laughs> Is that why we're here? I forgot. Okay. <laughs> too far. Musorski is too far. Uh, can you talk about, like, it, when you found this instrument, or when Tatiana found this instrument in New York, right? Was there a moment when she was like, okay, this is the one? It's kind of funny how that happened. We, uh, I walked into the room with Tatiana, and Philip was in the other room. And uh, he was kind of keeping his ears pretty fresh before we went in there to start listening to the instruments. And uh, Tatiana started all the way down at the end, and the piano we picked was the one on the other end. I want to say there were seven pianos there. Mm -hmm. And uh, she played them. Me and her both listened to them as she went down the line. And she got down to the very end one, and five seconds into playing it, 
I was like, that's the piano. And then she played maybe three or four more seconds. She turned around to me and said, this is it. This is the piano. So we didn't mention that to Philip when he came in to, to listen to him. He, want, he, didn't, he wanted to come in there completely Blind. fresh. Yes. Yeah. And he got to that piano and he turned to me and he said, this is our piano right here. Same and thing, five seconds yeah, in. Yeah, five seconds. So the next two hours, we tried to talk ourselves out of that piano just to see if, you know, to see if we could change our minds. We moved the pianos around the room just to see if it was just because it was too close to the wall or something, why it sounded so powerful. Because uh, we knew with, uh, with the Robinson Theater, we needed a very, uh, a very powerful concerto piano. We needed the most powerful piano they had in that room for us to choose. And that one sounded like it right off the bat. We moved it to the other end of the room to see if it still sounded like it. And it just, it, it made Tatiana seem like two feet two feet taller. You know, when yeah. she was playing it. It was incredible. I mean, it had, and actually, I think everybody in the room, all the Steinway people as well, had the exact same impression. It was, uh, it, it was an immediate reaction that this is one of the finest they, instruments that they've produced in a long time. Now, every single one of their concert instruments is a very fine instrument, but there is a degree of variation in personality, things that fit in different rooms better, things that fit in different repertories better. Um, but in this case, it was as if, I, I even if I hadn't heard the piano, knowing my wife, if I saw her body language, I would have known that that was the piano because she, you know, like Steven said, she seemed two feet taller. But to me, it seemed like she was suddenly heroic. It was like this piano allowed her to do things that other instruments w didn't allow her to do. And it was funny to see just the intuitive response that the Steinway people had too, because they started listening. She sat down at that piano and everyone just started smiling like, oh my goodness, this is, this is a great instrument we've created here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all the pianos they do, like you were saying, they come out different because of the materials that they use, the type of uh, Sitka spruce that they use on the soundboard, you know, that uh, the grains might be tighter on another one or something like that. The tree could be a little older. Uh, it could have been seasoned a little longer and uh, could have had just a little bit different shape when they hand-built it in the factory. So they all come out a little bit different, and you can get really in the weeds with how they're made uh, and what makes them a little bit different. But it's... In easy terms, it's they are uh, they're hand built. So I'm, I'm thrilled about it because basically now this is another one of our calling cards in Arkansas. Yes. Because when pianists come through town here, they're going to play on that instrument, and then let's say I work with them again in London or something, or I talk to a friend who's working with that pianist, they're going to say, "Oh yeah, I played a concerto in Arkansas, amazing piano in that hall." Yes. And and so that, that it's another flag that we can kind of share with the rest of the world of superlative mm -hmm. quality that I think is so important. And especially in terms of the, the story of the Arkansas Symphony right now, that we want to be a, a representative quality uh, example of how extraordinary some some of the artistic talent is here in Arkansas, and, and to share, you know, it, it's we really see ourselves as advancing the state in that way, and this yeah. piano is another big piece of that puzzle. Yeah, it's very exciting because also with being able to open this new Steinway Gallery, uh, we haven't had anybody representing Steinway in Arkansas for over a decade. So now I've had the wonderful opportunity to be able to do that and, and to build a Steinway Gallery and open one for Arkansas. And then now that our symphony, our Arkansas Symphony Orchestra has a brand new Steinway also, um, it's just, it's very exciting for me. It really is. Well, the way his, his gallery is in Mayflower. Yeah, I'm oh, putting it in Mayflower. Oh, Mayflower. <laughs> nice, nice. Right beside the freeway. Yeah. So. Is there a particular repertoire that having this instrument now makes you think we've got to do that or we've got to do that like Carl or or anybody really is there is there anything that like 
now that you have this instrument, you think we need to do this piece? That's a great question. Um, conquer the world with this piano. Though. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, th I think I mean, I think the answer to your question is uh, there's a lot of repertoire that this piano makes me want to program. It's not that we wouldn't have programmed it before. It's just that we would have had to brought, bring a piano from Dallas, or we would have mm -hmm. had to brought a piano from Nashville, and and now we have our very own piano that gives us all those options. Can you think of like? Can you name pieces in particular? Well, I, I the one of the things that was really intriguing about this instrument to me is you know it's people have talked about its power, so that you start thinking about things like the Brahms and Rachmaninoff piano concerti. But to me, it also had this extraordinary evenness in the middle register and a delicate and beautiful tone in, in pianissimo, which is when it's very quiet. And that, to me, it makes me think of doing things like Ravel and Mozart. Um, it, I, I, something that requires everything, I would love to hear this piano do you know, a Prokofiev third piano concerto, something like this that has the whole range and has a brilliance and a sparkle. Um, and, and really, I think, uh, we're all still getting to know this piano. In a way, I guess we just, it was a shotgun wedding. It's like we went to Vegas, but it was actually New York, and we came back together. And, <laughs> and, and, and we'll see now as how this instrument sounds in the fingers, under the fingers of other pianists. Where does it live? Like, so now that you've voiced it for the hall, does it have to stay where it is so it can adjust to the room? Or do you keep it? It's like, you have some piano humidor or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually, I'm actually storing it at the gallery. Okay. And, and, and Stephen's being very gracious there and humble to say that, but I think a big part of the story, and truly an integral part of making this work, was that because we don't have a big you know, symphony headquarters where we could store the piano, we would not have been able to get this piano were it not for Stephen graciously offering to store the piano for us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he's even subsidizing this concert this weekend by um, uh, taking a part of a big, a significant portion of the move to the hall. So uh, Stephen is a big part of the financial picture in making this piano possible as well. We, I, I, I want to thank him on your show publicly because uh, uh, I'm, I'm th you, you can tell on my face how excited I am about this story, but it wouldn't have happened without Stephen. Welcome. I I've seen him before. Um, this was with another piano, but um, we did what Gershwin, Gershwin yeah, with, uh, He didn't like the action. This was another piano, but Stephen, like two hours before the concert, had the whole thing apart, and I was trying to change the action so he could do all repeated notes and all. Of them. So he's amazing. Uh, yeah, it actually ended up. Yeah. So like if, if an artist comes in and says, "Well, could you make this do, do this with it?" He, he can mm -hmm. he can slightly change it to alter it, alter it. So cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how long how long did it take you to get to, to be that proficient with? Well, actually, with me, um, I started working on pianos when I was seventeen. So almost you know my entire adulthood. I have worked on pianos. Uh, I live and breathe pianos. Uh, I did a 10-year apprenticeship and uh, and from that uh, I went to Steinway and did some training as well under their head technicians and learned how to prep instruments for concerts uh, like for like like the situation we had today for some reason the piano didn't have the power that it had uh, before and something that I learned there at Steinway was a way just to check how the trying to think of how to say it, just the key bedding, how the piano is actually connected, how the keys are connected to the piano. And I checked that and it was off. So I was able to adjust that in 10 minutes. And now we have the powerhouse that we had in New York. And uh, so just learning stuff like that from people that have done this, you know, their whole lives and the 30, 40, 50 years of working on pianos and learning from people like that. Um, I've now been doing it 17, going on 18 years. and. I work on pianos eight to 12 hours a day, every day, 
So it's uh, it's just it's just a huge part of my life. Can people just come into the gallery, or they need need to make an appointment and give well, you a right call? Right now, uh, right now we're by appointment only because the gallery is actually in the middle of being built. Um, we're building a new gallery, and uh, right now I just have a warehouse where I have all the pianos housed, all the Steinways, and uh, hopefully in about two months I'm going to open the new gallery right there beside the freeway and. Uh, I've got 20-foot ceilings in there, and it's just going to be absolutely amazing. And we're going to have small concerts in there and some chamber music, and uh, it's going to be fun. Great. I'm really excited about talk about the about finish it. on the piano, because they're, they're cha they've changed. Yeah, they've what changed. Actually, now. yeah. So Humberg has always put like a polyester finish on a piano. What a polyester finish is, it's more like a car paint almost. It's very durable, very strong. And what it's done, uh, well, in Humberg, that's how they've always been. And in New York, they've always uh, done lacquer finishes, which is a softer finish, not quite as durable. Scratch is a little easier, too. Um, but now New York is doing the... Uh, well, I call it the Humberg finish, but it's the polyester finish, and it has made this piano like a like a tank almost. Um, I'm still treating it with kitty gloves, and you know, almost want to give everybody white cotton gloves before they touch it, you know, to push it across the stage. But um, it's made the tuning more stable because the case is uh, encased in something stronger, so the piano doesn't move. I mean, think about it: a piano is made of wood. It has 18 tons of tension on it too, always pulling at it. So that wood will fluctuate depending on what the humidity is in the room. So when the humidity's high, the piano swells up. When the humidity's low, the, piano, uh, the wood shrinks. So um, having that, that rock hard polyester finish on the piano makes it to where it just holds a better tune, it holds a better regulation. It's, uh, it's actually easier to move um, and uh, it doesn't scratch near as easy either. So, I mean, I really love the polyester finish that's on this piano. And when you go there, I mean, just the, the appeal of how it looks, it's it's shiny black. I mean, it is it's beautiful. You can see your reflection in it. And it's uh, just shiny black and gold letters on the side of it. It's absolutely just stunning. It is a beautiful, beautiful instrument. So tell our listeners, just to wrap up, where they can find tickets and come hear this Steinway in person in real life. Uh, ArkansasSymphony.org and uh, the concerts. It's our season opener too, so I mean, I would get your tickets quickly for this. Uh, Saturday night at 7.30 at the Robinson Music Hall and Sunday at 3 o'clock. If you want to come early, have a drink maybe, or maybe hear our pre-concert talk, it's another chance to ask some questions perhaps, learn a little bit about the music you're going to hear in the concert. And uh, if it, So ArkansasSymphony.org, but we, if, you, if you prefer to call, we've got an amazing box office staff that would love to talk with your listeners, and it's 501-666-1761. We'd love to see you. This is this is a concert that if you've never been to the symphony before, it'd be a great first experience. You all, we've all probably heard "Sorcerer's Apprentice" with the old Disney Fantasia, mm -hmm. uh, so it'll it'll sound familiar, and, and it's a great yeah. story for the whole family. Well, thank you so much for being here, Philip Mann, Stephen Wurgis, and Carl Anthony. I'm here with Omaya Jones, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to No Small Talk, and to round things out, we're going to make some recommendations. What's your recommendation, Omaya? Well, my recommendation is sort of a three-parter. Okay. Uh, so, so this week in the Arkansas Times, uh, Stephen Koch wrote a story about the Blaze Foley, the musician. He said, the headline of the article is Blaze Foley, Never a Star, Always a Legend. First, I want people to read this article, and then I want you to go to the movie theater, Riverdale 10 VIP Cinema, where the Blaze Foley movie will be opening this weekend, 
And then I also want you to check out uh, the Film Comment podcast where they talk to the director of the film, Ethan Hawke. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a lot of interesting things to say about um, the state of acting, the role of acting. He talks about film schools really critically, which okay. I think is interesting. All right. And specifically what he talks about is how in film schools they focus on cinematography and Hawk argues that like no great direct or well few how he, he challenges the audience uh, to think of like how many great directors started out as cinematographers versus how many started out as actors and he argues that they should teach acting in film school mm-hmm. uh, and if you followed um, movie news over the past couple months you know that there have been a couple times where Hawk will say something uh, that really isn't that controversial and then it becomes like a thing for several days uh, most okay. notably, he said that Logan was not a great movie. It was pretty good. And people <laughs> people kind of flipped out. Uh, but, like, he's right. And I think he's, he's been on this tear of just saying things that are like, kind of obviously true. Um, but that I don't know, give him a lot of attention, bad attention, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, did you know Blaze Foley before? I think maybe a lot of people from Arkansas don't know about I this I did guy. not. No. Yeah. Com- completely unaware. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie, do you have a recommendation? I do. I, like many people, was very spellbound by the uh, moments and many moments in Christine Blasey Ford's uh, testimony today and uh, and then Brett Kavanaugh's uh, testimony this afternoon. And there's been a little bit of attention, maybe not a little bit by this time. We've been sitting recording this podcast and the news moves very quickly. Yes. Maybe by this time it's a lot of attention. <laughs> I don't know. Given to the fact that uh, a woman in the audience looked very much like Alyssa Milano. It is Alyssa Milano. <laughs> so my recommendation is that if you haven't been following Alyssa Milano on Twitter, do that. Um, she's been really at the forefront of a lot of thought in the Me Too movement. And I think... Um, you will be inspired if you agree with most of the things that she says. And if you don't agree with most of the things that she says, um, I think that she is a a good person to listen to. And um, if you only know her from who's the boss, then that can change very soon for the better. (laughs) Yeah. And do you have a move for that? Nothing against who's the boss. Yeah. Uh, I will co-sign that. Uh, I'm actually going to start following her on Twitter right now. All right. Right. Even though it's against my usual don't follow celebrities. Degree. Oh, yeah, but yeah. she's, but. you know, um, <clears throat> Alyssa Milano, she's, yeah. she's, she's speaking some much needed truths. All right. Yeah. Do you have a move for the week? I do. I'm going to suggest that you go to Four Quarter Bar Friday night if you're not going to see the Blaze screening. We can see that on Saturday too, yeah. right? Yes. Is Friday and Saturday? Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's wide release. Okay. I think it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you can't catch that or um, you need something to do afterward, go to Four Quarter Bar and listen to Lydia Lunch Retrovirus, this new sort of little super group that um, uh, no, no wave pioneer uh, Lydia Lunch has um, has assembled. It's Bob Burt from Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore and uh, this jazz bassist uh, Tim Dahl. I call him a jazz bassist, but he's done like more experimental bassist, Tim Dahl, and then uh, Walter Weasel from the Flying Lutenbachers. And so uh, they self-describe as an all-star cast of sonic brutarians in a no-holds-barred survey of Lunch's musical output from 1977 to the present. So I will sadly not see this. I'll be singing with Iron Tongue. We're, We're opening for the sword at the Rev Room, and by all means, you should 
certainly uh, c- come see me there. But also, uh, let's go to Four Quarter Bar after that and check out Lydia Lunch Retrovirus. Awesome. It'll be awesome. Sweet. Well, that I guess that wraps it up for this week, and we will see you next time. Well, we'll see you. <laughs> <laughs>